Father, you are a great God, and you are worthy to be praised. And, oh God, we invite you now, as you and all you can, to work in our hearts to make us those that see you in all of your infinite greatness and fall down before you with hearts of pure worship. God, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for each one that is here in this room. Thank you for your work of grace in our lives and in this church. And, oh God, we'd ask that we would be those that would see you high and lifted up, that we would be those that are affected to the core. And, Father, that we would walk out of this place and that we would be those the rest of this day and the rest of our lives that would be more like you, that we'd be those that reflect you, that those that have a passion for you, those that love to speak of you, those that see you in your infinite greatness. And so, Father, we commit this time to you with much expectation, with much thanksgiving. In the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, again, I welcome you this morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. We're so pleased to be able to be those that gather in one accord because God's Spirit is in us and God is with us and God is for us. So we bless God for that. A lot of opportunities to catch up and fellowship. I love getting to know you guys. Uh, sitting at the table this morning, talking in between the times and seeing how God is truly the one that you live for, that he is your life and that Christ is everything to you. And I got to thinking about this uh, in every relationship, whether if it's in marriage or whether it's with the kids, whether it's at work with unbelievers, uh, in school, that relationships really are based upon communication, Right? Uh, you don't have any sort of a good, healthy relationship unless you have solid communication. We know that. I mean, it's so obvious. It's right there. Now, imagine if last night we all showed up to this camp and we're hoarse. We can't, we can't talk a word, right? We can communicate. It'd be hard. We'd be writing things you know, on little sketchboards and we'd be making gestures and all this. But it'd be very difficult to communicate without having words to communicate with one another with. And we wouldn't have really, we'd have, a, as it were, a wrench thrown in the works if we couldn't communicate well at this camp together as God's people. Now, we know that's true in human relationships. Communication is indispensable to a healthy, growing relationship. And how much more so now, Christian? You know where we're going with this, right? Not only horizontally, but vertically. And our relationship with God, our relationship with Him, our growth in Him is based upon our communication with Him, hearing from Him and responding to Him. We have to be those that understand how God communicates and listening closer to that and then respond to him rightly. That is at the core of a life of worship to God. Exciting, wonderful, enthusiastic communication. Now think about this. The God who is the God of the ages of the universe, the God of all creation, the God who needed none of us, who never needed to make us, would be just fine without us in the eternal trinity and Godhead, made man and then decided, I will communicate with man. God is a God who speaks. God communicates with his creatures, and when he does, he does so clearly. We see this throughout Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 till, Gen till Revelation chapter 22. God is a God who speaks. In Genesis 1 verse 3, we read these words, And God said. God is communicating. And then Revelation 22. In pre preparation for the new creation, the Apostle John hears the Son of God saying, yes, I am coming quickly. From beginning to end and in between, God is a God who communicates with his people. And he communicates clearly. You see, God is a God of self-revelation. God is a God of disclosure who wants us to intimately know him and walk with him and worship him. It is he who speaks to us. 
is he who assures us of, of his nearness and his presence in our lives. He communicates these truths to us. And it's through these words that God has shared with us how we can be delivered from doubts, how we can be freed from those things that would affect us, that would weigh us down, that would discourage us in our souls. Now, on top of that, God communicating to us, it is our response to God's communication with him that keeps our worship to be warm, to be vibrant, and to be growing. Hearing God speak to us and respond to him, that is at the very core and foundation of worship of God. We look together this morning at the 19th Psalm, a psalm you guys know well, a powerful psalm that shows us how God communicates, how he speaks to his people. Psalm 19, I invite you to turn there with me to the 19th Psalm. Here we see in this psalm two ways that God speaks to us as his people. He speaks to us through his wondrous works, and he speaks to us through his wonderful word. His wondrous works and his wonderful, wonderful word. We see that unfold before us. Let's listen now to the psalm, Psalm 19. For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. The words of this psalm ring out the glory of God's revelation, God communicating, God speaking to his people. For he has, is a God who has disclosed himself to us as his creatures. He has made himself known to us in a very clear way that we see here in this beautiful psalm. The chapter title tells us that David wrote this psalm the second king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, a man who walked with God, a man who worshiped his God. And here we see what drives his heart of worship. It is him listening to God, communicating to him. And there are two ways in which David hears God communicating with him. First of all, we see divine communication to us is through the works of God. The works of God, God speaks through his works. 
Friends, what this psalmist puts before us here isn't some dry college lecture. Rather, it is a spectacular drama. It lights up before us as we see what he describes in these verses. The opening line, line grabs our attention like the blast of a trumpet. He exclaims, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Here we are given unmistakable witness. Unmistakable witness. I'm giving you a number of things that follow from the works of God, how God's works speak to us. First of all, the unmistakable witness. David may have just glanced into the skies of Jerusalem. It's the cosmic stage set with a huge azure backdrop against which God's grandeur is displayed. It's shown. So here we're called by David to picture what he sees. It's the visible heavens, the skies above us, that speak to us with a soul-captivating voice, he says. They cause us, as it were, to sit up and listen, to pay attention, look and say, wow, look what has been made that speaks to us. Just over a week ago, I drank in one of those big sky moments, you know, when the skies are like ablaze with the glory of God. We're driving on the freeway there in Michigan where there's one of these huge overpasses over these other freeways. We're probably 75 feet, feet high. You can't see anything but skies around you. 360 degrees blue with these huge white billowy clouds. It's like God speaks clearly to show his power, his wisdom in what we see around us every, in every direction. The exquisite beauty shown in the skies. This is what David is talking about here. What I saw that day and what we see often many days if we have eyes to see and look up above us are skies that do exactly what David said they are meant to do. They communicate heaven's message in an unmistakable way. What is that message that the skies are to communicate? What is that? It is not the glory of man. It is the glory of God to man. God is saying, look at my glory, look and see. It is God's glory that he speaks to us of in the skies that shows the greatness of his person that we're to behold and take in and process. What we're seeing here in the very first part, the very first verse of this psalm is this. We have before us what God has made, what God has built for us to be able to process, to experience with our physical senses. It's real, it's vivid, it's tangible. We can see it, we can breathe it in that God has made to us that he communicates through to us. Look at verse 1, how it goes on, what it says. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. When we look into the, into the space, when we look into the skies, what is it that we see? We see testimony. We see testimony not of some accident, but of, of perfect order and design that has been put there by God who made it for us to see. Friends, every time man gazes upwards, he sees design. Design that pleads and argues for what? For a designer. Some designer had to make this beautiful, incredible, exquisite design. It is absurd to think that such spectacular order and intimate beauty is there but has no creator. That is there just for no reason that came out of nowhere. Rather, the heavens prove to mankind that they are the product of an all-wise mind and skillful hands that made that. By the way, it's fascinating, we know, but let me remind you of all creatures that God has made, man is incredibly unique and special. We are not in an animal category classification. We are made in God's image. We are image bearers of God. 
We have souls that live forever. But there's something more that I want you to see and lock into from this very text here this morning. God has made you Christian, and God has made me unique as his creatures to, listen now, to walk upright, to look up, to look up, not to look down. I was on a walk around our church facility some time back. And I'm, I'm processing and meditating on these words of this psalm. And I come up to this couple that are walking a little dog. And all that dog could do, that little mud would, look, would be looking down at the ground and a little bit up, but not straight up, just a little bit ahead, I should say. They, as owners of that dog, were uniquely different. They could look up and see the skies. It's not an accident that God has made mankind to be able to perceive and easily look up and see what he has made that argues of his greatness. You and I, Christian, were specially designed by God with heads pointed upward with eyes to see the beauty in the sky above us. That's God's design. He's made us that way to worship him because of what we see. The heavens, the planets that we sang of, the molecules, all those things, the things that we see in creation, particularly here, the things above us, are the fingerprints of a perfect architect who made those for us to see and to worship him for. He wants us to see that, to see that. Christian, let me encourage you this morning. Take time to see what God has made in creation, especially in the skies. And when you see, let that percolate in your mind, let that bang around in your head to make you remember God put this here for me, written in Psalm 19:1, so that I will be one who worships him and exclaims of his greatness. We need to get more out, get outside more, especially those of us that are in the office a lot, whether in ministry, whether on the job. Uh, get outside on the breaks or after before work whenever you can and stare and look and see this is the greatness of my God. He has made this for me to see and respond in worship. Because when we see what God has made in the heavens, we realize that we are small and that God is immense, that God is big, that God is awesome. And we respond as David did in Psalm 8, Psalm chapter 8. In fact, look back to Psalm 8. Look there with me. Look at the response of a person that is in awe of God, how he worships God. Psalm 8 will start in the first verse. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who has displayed your splendor above the heavens? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have taken thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? There we see David awestruck by what he sees in God's creation and says, God, I am nothing. But God, you reached out to me. You care for me. You love for me. You love me. God's revelation of himself in the skies is not only unmistakable, it is untiring it is untiring the second verse expands upon the first and says this day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge throughout the day god reveals his greatness in the heavens every day god says look at my greatness you see it there and every night he points to his glory in the shining stars those flashing luminaries reveal God's infinite wisdom and knowledge. We're told this, if you live in the city like I think all of us do, right? If you live in the city on a typical night, because of all the lights, you can see approximately and count at best 80 stars, 8-0, 80 stars. It's kind of sad, not that many. But then if you get away into the mountains like we're here, 
you can count approximately 4,000 stars with your naked eye, 4,000. That's increased. That's more, of course. But scientists tell us, because of all that they can actually count, it's amazing. There are a lot more stars than we can count in the mountains. Astronomers estimate that our own Milky Way galaxy is home to some 300 billion stars. That one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has 300 billion stars. And then they tell us that the observable universe alone has more than 100 billion galaxies just in what's observable. Now, of course, it's staggering. It's off the charts. So there is an uncountable number of stars to us, but not to God. God made every one of the stars to reveal his glory. Even if we can't see the stars, and watch now this, God not only made those trillions and billions and gazillions of stars, but he named every single one of the stars that glorifies him. Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Remember, in the, I don't know if they still do this. They used to. I remember years back, you could buy a star and give it your name or name the star. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. God says, I've already named all of them. They're mine. They exist for my glory. Every day, those shining stars, stars, thousands of light years away, they testify of our glorious God. And if we respond rightly, we're in awe of the greatness of God who has shown himself in those shining stars night after night. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be quelched. During the French Revolution, rebel Jean St. André said to a poor Christian peasant, I will have all your steeples pulled down so you can no longer have an object to remind you of your superstitious God. The peasant then responded, but you cannot help but leave us the stars. You can't take that testimony from us. It's impossible, and those are testimony of the fact that God is a great God who is far beyond our understanding. We now see how those celestial voices communicate to us in a way that's understandable, understandable. We can understand the message that God sends through what we see in the heavens above us. Well, in verse 1, the heavens and expanse tell and declare God's glorious work. Look at verse 3. Surprisingly, look what follows. Then it says, there is no speech, nor their words, their voice is not heard. Here we see that God's revelation in his creation isn't in some human tongue, not some known language, as it were. It is given to us in the language of the redeemed soul. It speaks to our souls. The message of the glorious God that he's put for us to see in the skies and space and the stars, it resonates in the hearts of those who have eyes to see and have ears to hear that message from God. See, the message of the glorious God resonates in the hearts of those that know him personally, those that are his worshipers. Yet what of those who see all the evidence that God has put there and conclude it's all a product of time plus chance, it's just an accident that we cannot really explain? They're just like those who saw Christ feed the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8. And after they saw all that take place, they hardened their hearts in unbelief. They denied the evidence that they saw right before their eyes. To these who refuse to believe God's revelation, Christ says in Mark 8, verse 18, 
Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Christian, bless God. We have eyes that can perceive. We have ears that can hear because God has opened them and made them see his evidence for his greatness in all of creation. And what about those in the darkest corners of the world that have never heard of God? What of them? Fourthly, God's revealing himself and his creative work is universal. It is universal. It's everywhere. It's global. It's, we see that in verse 4 of Psalm 19. Notice with me. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. To the end of the world. This couldn't be clearer. God's witness of himself in creation touches every place and every person on the entire planet. Spurgeon put it this way. God's heavens preach at all times, in all tongues, and in all towns. Once more, God's heavens preach at all times, in all tongues, and in all towns. It's everywhere for those that God has made to see. Yes, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is given by God a convincing witness of his greatness, and he's built it right into creation. That very truth lies behind the Apostle Paul's declaration of human inexcusability, that man is without excuse, without excuse. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Man cannot plead ignorant. Because what God has said, you see clearly what is there to be seen in creation. The unsaved person's problem isn't a lack of information. What is it? It is rather an unwillingness to submit to the truth of God that they see before them. I want you to see in Romans chapter 10, go there with me please, to Romans 10, verse 18. Because the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 18, he appeals to our very text of Psalm 19 to show how all have heard of God's superlative glory. Romans 10, verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's clear in the panorama of God's creation, God has graciously communicated his greatness and power and glory for all to see, is available to all. That information is not sufficient to save, but rather it shows God to the truth seeker that God is there. And in, in Christ, God provides that perfect solution for the one who seeks him, even revealing in what God has revealed in creation. In other words, general revelation compels man to come and, and see and understand that there's a big God. And as that person moves forward to seek to know that God, God supplies the truth in Christ, that that is the solution. He is the one who brings that person to God. God's disclosure of himself in the heavens is unmistakable. It is untiring. It is understandable. It is universal. And now we see it is unrivaled. It is unrivaled. Verse 4, David continues of Psalm 19. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. A tent for the sun God has provided it in them, in creation, in the heavens. What is that meaning? It's talking about how God has perfectly positioned the sun in space. 
He has put it exactly where it must be to do exactly what he wants it to accomplish. And it's not what scientists call a natural phenomenon. There's no natural phenomenon here. It is a spiritual phenomenon. It is a miracle. For more than any other part of creation, the sun screams of the intensity and immensity of God. The sun massively declares the intensity and immensity of God. Now let's talk about this for a moment. The sun, because it's right here in our text. God is telling us, talking to us about the sun, S-U-N, he has made so we can worship him as we ought to worship him. Do you realize that the sun is so huge that more than one million planet Earths can fit comfortably inside the sun? In fact, the sun, the sun makes up 99.8% of the total mass of the solar system. 99.8% of the entire solar system is made up by the sun in terms of mass. What about the energy of the sun? The sun is so powerful that the output of the sun gives 386 billion megawatts. 386 billion megawatts. That is 100 billion tons of dynamite which would be needed to be detonated every second to match that power. Unbelievable. Off the charts. Four million tons of hydrogen are consumed every second by the sun. Every second, four million tons of hydrogen are consumed by the sun to make it work. It's a lot. Don't worry about it at all. Because we know that God will sustain, sustain the sun's fuel until it wraps up his plan for this world. And that one will happen. Then it will all change. Then we know in the new Jerusalem, the coming heaven, there will be a whole new light source far more powerful than the S-U-N sun. In Revelation 21, verse 23, we're told what that will be. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. There it is. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, has become the illuminary of all the heavens to shine forth the power and glory of God. Now watch how the Son is personified in our text of Psalm 19, verse 5. It says, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's talking about the soon-to-be-married man. It's depicting the radiance of the sun that is heralding its message of God. There's no waiting. There's no delay. There's exuberance as it moves forth to do its work. What about that next phrase, the strong man to run his course? There are two possibilities. It could be the athlete that's running to the starting line to start to run his race. Or it could be the warrior running to battle with explosive intensity. Either one, there's no waiting. There's an intense pursuit of getting to where the person has to be. So too the sun. It cannot be held back. It cannot be delayed. It runs forth and does the job that God calls it to do day after day after day. In fact, the, the sun is so consistent in doing what God has called it to do, we can set our time, we can set our watches and all that, our every hour, every minute, we can know exactly the time the sun will rise and set every day because God says this is when it will happen so perfectly, exactly on track. Now in verse 6, that's why we see in our text of chapter 19, it talks about its rising is from one end of the heavens, that's east, and it's circling to the other end of them, that's to the west. 
The sun not only shines on us and all God's creatures, the psalmist adds, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing hidden from its heat. We are told that the sun at its core is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I'm not sure exactly. You can talk to Tom and confirm that exactly into the degree, okay? But give or take a couple million, 27 million degrees of Fahrenheit. It's incredible heat. Yet because of God's perfect placement of the sun in space and how he makes the solar winds blow their radiated heat toward the earth, the sun's rays reach us in a most welcome source of heat perfectly as we need that heat to shine upon us, especially in the Michigan winters when we're freezing, okay? It's like, praise God for the sun. We need exactly what's coming our way from him. Now, there's a greater bridegroom coming forth from his chamber that's being talked about here. It's pointing ahead. The one who would run his course in the future 2,000 years before, after this. The son of God, the bride of the church. Fourth century hymn writer Ephraim he drew from this verse of our psalm what described Christ's first coming. The whole creation proclaims, the magi proclaim, the star proclaims, behold, the king's son is here. Christ has come. The bridegroom has arrived. Friends, Christ is the ultimate and final bridegroom that this text points to, who runs his course, who ran his course, he is the ultimate fulfillment of all these first seven verses put together. Notice with me how Paul shows us that Christ, the Son of God, is the fulfillment ultimately of the Son, the S-U-N Son. Look with me to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. I want you to see the connection between the two. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. For God, who said light, shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has shown in our hearts the brilliance of his majesty, and he has done that in Christ. The prophet Isaiah, he anticipates the future heavenly state. He knows what's going to change, and he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in Isaiah 60, verse 20. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. No more sun. Why? Because Christ, the Son of God, is the everlasting light that God will show to the world. Those seven verses show us the spectacular revelation of God in creation, in his works, that's there to be seen by all. And now we see the writer transition from the works of God to the word of God that God uses to reveal who he is to mankind. Here we see in the following section how God communicates to man clearly in a written form for us to read of, the word of God, verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19. And here it is that we see the breathtaking, breathtaking display of God communicating to us black and white on pages of Scripture. The poet here gives us a rapid-fire, six-faceted display of God's Word. And each facet gives us three things. It gives us a title of God's Word, then a characteristic of God's Word, and then it's followed by a benefit of God's Word. A title, a characteristic, and a benefit of the Word of God repeated 
for us six different times. Every time there's something repeated. Six times we read the word of the Lord. Repetition, scripture means emphasis, which means pay attention. It's important, God's saying to us. Of the Lord shows us, it affirms to us that all of God's word is from God. He is the source of it all. It's all from him. Therefore, we have to lock into it at every point. Now let's take a closer look at the six shining facets of God's word through which he communicates to us and causes us to worship him more. It's so beautiful in verse 7. The psalmist declares, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Perfect here describes what is complete, what is undefiled, what is faultless. It guarantees for us as a reader of the scripture that God's word is perfect. It's freed from any taint of error, of defilement, any mistake. There is none in scripture. It is absolutely perfect. James calls God's word in James 1.25 the perfect law. The perfect law of liberty. And that is how it can restore our souls. Friends, this book we call the Bible is God's perfect means of conversion for the soul. Apart from God's word, not a one of us here this morning would be saved. We could not be saved apart from God's perfect word given to us in Scripture. It is God's word, not man's words, that save. It is God's specific words, God's text of Scripture written down as we understand and perceive that causes a person, causes us to be saved. St. Augustine he said it was Romans 13, 13 that jolted him into spiritual life. Romans 13, 13. Jonathan Edwards said it was 1 Timothy 1, verse 17 that God used to convict him of sin and save him. Martin Luther, Romans 1, 16, he says, this is what changed my life, that text of Scripture. In every case, specific passages of Scripture brought salvation home to the heart. In fact, Martin Luther exclaimed, and I quote, when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered in by the open doors into the very paradise of God. In very truth, this text was to me the true gate of paradise. Family of God, in each of our lives, God used his perfect word to draw us to himself and to save us and regenerate our souls. The perfect word of God is what restores the soul. Oh, bless God, it doesn't stop at salvation in terms of turning from sin. It continues in sanctification as well. God continues to sanctify us by his perfect word day after day after day. The second shining facet of God's written word, in the second half of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sure is the term from which we get the word in English, amen, is aman, aman in Hebrew. Aman speaks of what is certain, what is firm, and what is fully supported. We can think of a parent's strong arms securing that tottering toddler, holding that child up before he falls. That's what God does for us through his word. He supports us. He makes wise the simple. Now what a contrast this is to Eden's forbidden fruit that was a deadly counterfeit of being desirable to make one wise. That was the ploy, that was the trick. That's what they fell for, that would make them wise. Praise God in his written word to us, we have all we need to become wise unto salvation and live wisely in this world. Isn't that wonderful? What a messed up world we live in. God's word, pure word, 
keeps us from falling prey to the world's worthless wisdom, from parroting their pagan philosophies and embracing their empty opinions. God's word gives us God's wisdom. Listen carefully. Beloved, there has never, there's never been a time in history when there have been so many people living so foolishly. And some of those are those that wear the name, claim to be Christians, living so foolishly, confused by all the stuff going, around, going on around us. We have the LGBT agenda. We have gender-neutral bathroom laws that are continually being pushed at us. And there are threats of criminal consequences for parents that spank children in love. So much confusion and twisted living must be confronted with lives anchored in God's word that makes us wise. God's word is God's way of giving us this spiritual GPS system that allows us to navigate this world with his wisdom. It is his word. Thirdly, the third designation of the scriptures, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. Precepts talk about instructions that make straight what was crooked. When things in our lives get bent out of shape, as they often do, when they're out of order, it is God's word, like the spiritual straight edge, that realigns us to himself. That's what he's saying here. It corrects us. And what results? It rejoices our hearts. The precepts of the Lord make us glad. They cause us to rejoice in God. There are no books, there are no programs, there are no singers, there are no counselors who can give us comfort and joy. God gives us in his word. So Christian, don't dare go there. Don't think I'm missing something and there's not enough in God's word. Go to the word and let his wisdom rejoice your heart. In Psalm 119, verse 111, we read, the psalmist says, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Isn't that good? God, your testimonies are mine forever and they are the joy of my heart. The first epistle of John, in 1 John 1 verse 4, affirms that our joy is one of the reasons that we've been given the word of God. That we read, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. God's word gives joy for the Christian. It causes it to flourish. All of us know what it's like to have heavy hearts some of you have been going through tough times, maybe a difficult patch of life that God is leading you down. We can begin to lose the joy. Earlier this summer, earlier part of the summer, Sonny and I were hit with one of those difficult, overwhelming trials that just like rocked our world. What do you do? You run to God's word. You run to the precious promises. You cling to God's precious promises you and you say God I will hold to you and I know you'll hold to me and you'll see us through and what happened it gave us inexplicable joy we can rejoice in the midst of the chaos in the midst of the confusion in the midst of God what is happening what is going on in this situation God your word is enough because your word is everything that you want us to understand and know of you in this situation we'll cling to you Jeremiah better known as a weeping prophet he knew in the midst of his awful ministry the joy that God's word gives the soul. And he said this in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. What a test, testament, what a text to run to when you're overwhelmed with God, what is going on now? God, your word is the joy and delight of my heart. 
I can rejoice because of your word. I can rejoice. Fourthly, the fourth facet of Scripture, in the second half of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's directives to us are spotless and untainted. There's no falsehood. We saw that earlier. In Psalm 12, verse 6, we read, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. What's the idea there? It doesn't get any purer. It's as pure as pure can be. That is God's word to us, Christian. Psalm 119, verse 140. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Your servant loves it. How does God's pure word give light to our eyes, Christian? It opens our spiritual perception to grasp the deep things of God. It gives us deep insight and discernment as we seek to live out God's word in this confusing world. God causes us to see what he wants us to see as we look into his word. Fifthly, the fifth statement of God's revealed truth to us, verse 8. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We talked about the fear of the Lord yesterday, how it's so vital for us in walking before God wisely. It's that awe of God, that reverence for God that causes us to love him and hate evil. Yet when David tells us here the fear of the Lord is clean, he's using a term from metallurgy, when they would make metals. They would make his iron spears and bronze bows for him. And he wanted those metals to be absolutely pure, unmixed with dross. He wanted them to be genuine, the real thing. And so too, a feigned Fear of God just won't cut it before God. He wants our hearts before him to be pure of full fear of God before him. Christian, God demands a real and authentic fear of him in our lives. And that comes from the word. It's driven by his word. So mark it well this morning. You will grow in fearing God as you grow in God's word. God grows our understanding of who he is and rightly responding to him and fearing him as we grow in our love for his word. There's a text in Deuteronomy 17. Just listen carefully. It told, told Israel the first thing that their coming kings had to do in their rulership. The first thing the kings were to do. And watch how it merges the two things together we just saw. Now it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. You see what they're supposed to do? Every king of Israel was called to copy personally God's law. And every day they were to review that, and as they did, they would be those that grew in the fear of God and would wisely lead in the kingdom. They would fear and obey God. How much more, believer, do we need to be those that saturate our minds with God's word so we will live in the fear of him always? God's word drives the right response of fear to him. Sixthly, the sixth facet of the scriptures, verse 9 of our text, chapter 19, the second part, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. The divine verdicts of Scripture are reliable because they're rooted in a God who is reliable and true. 
They're perfectly true because they are from God who is perfectly true. Christ prayed with his disciples in that high priestly prayer in John 17. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is what causes us to be sanctified in him. That is everything for us as believers, and that is what unbelievers hate. An unbeliever who is not being drawn by the Spirit of God is repulsed by hearing the truth of God. There's a heart unwillingness to submit to the truth of the gospel. An unbeliever once said, there is one thing that mars all the pleasures of my life. Indeed, replied his friend, what is that? He answered, the unbeliever speaks, I'm afraid the Bible is true. If I can know for certain that death is an eternal is an eternal sleep, I should be happy. My joy would be complete. But here's the thorn that stings me. This is a sword that pierces my very soul. If the Bible is true, I am lost forever. You see, that person understood. God's truth convicts. And if the person rejects that, that person is lost forever. The truth of the Bible is the greatest news for the saved, and yet the greatest cause of fear for the one who is willfully unsaved. God's written word gives us far more than his works of creation could ever give us. They give us a specific, clear, detailed knowledge of the living God. God's word gives us all that we need to fully know and please and worship him every day of our lives. God's word challenges us. God's word cheers us. God's word changes us. God's word convicts us and cleanses us. God's word is of imminent, incredible value to the child of God. Notice in verse 10 how valuable it is. David says there of God's word, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Here, the word of God is compared to gold and honey because those two commodities were of great worth in that day. In our day, gold is, but honey isn't as much. Those were for them great treasures. Yet the greatest treasure on earth isn't in Fort Knox. It isn't in the hundreds of thousands of artifacts in the British Museum. It's not all the wealth in Rome's Vatican. The surpassing treasure that dwarfs every other rival is possessing the very word of God. This is all gold for the believer. That's why the writer of Psalm 119, 172, he exclaims, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In other words, I don't need the gold. God, I just want your word. Your word is better than all the gold that man could give. What about the honey, the metaphor of honey? That was the choicest food because of the nutrition and sweetness it gave to the taster. You realize in the Old Testament that there are at least 20 times the Old Testament calls the promised land a land flowing with milk and honey. They loved honey. And therefore, it compelled them. They wanted that. Yet God says here through the, through the writer David that the sweetest honey from the honeycomb cannot compare with the word of God. For it is the word of God that feeds, enriches, and satisfies the soul like nothing else can ever do. On the day that the prophet Ezekiel was commissioned, God told Ezekiel to eat a scroll which was God's written word. God says, Ezekiel, take that scroll and eat it. This is my word. You remember what happened when he ate that scroll? 
Ezekiel 3, verse 3. The, pro- the prophet recounts, he speaks, he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. He's God's word. He said, it's like honey. It's so sweet, God. Oh, how we need to be those that feed on God's word daily and throughout the day. For that is what will fill our, fill our lives with supernatural sweetness that will satisfy our souls. You, I know that you guys love the word. I know that you're saying, I know this, but let me tell you this. We can grow more. We can excel still more in devouring and feeding on the precious word of God that is honey to the soul. If that sweet treasure wasn't enough, the psalmist in verse 11 of Psalm 19, he says, he adds even more, he says, moreover, in other words, indeed by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There is great reward. It's the reward of a pure life that is not victimized by a life of regret and misery of sin. That's what he's talking about here. As a person follows God's word, as a person devours God's word and is satisfied, they're kept from the regret of sin. You know very clearly Psalm 119, 9 through 11. I would commend it to you guys again and again. We never outgrow what the psalmist says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It was John Bunyan who put it this way. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Christian, purpose in your heart to devote yourself as never before to immersing your life and your soul in the satisfying and sin-smashing message of the word of God. The works of God. The word of God are what God uses to communicate to us to change our lives. And lastly, the walk with God. This is what flows from the commitment to take in God speaking to us, the walk with God in verses 12 through 14. David, I believe, had already gone through his awful time of Psalm 51, Psalm 32, coming clean before God because of falling into adultery and murdering Bathsheba's husband. And now he's right before God. He had fallen deep into the horrors of those sins. And here we see his heart is sensitized to God's word and sensitive to his own sin. He says, who can discern his errors? He asked that question, and the understood, implied response is, no one. Only God can. Only God can. We are like musical instruments that quickly go out of tune, and yet we do not recognize that. We don't recognize that when there's something not right in the heart, that the heart is wandering from God. There are some hidden habits of sin that we've become so subtly enslaved to. This is what David is talking about here, discerning our errors. There's a Puritan Thomas Watson who wrote, a child of God laments hidden wickedness. He has more evil in him than he knows of. There are those windings in his heart which he cannot trace, an unknown world of sin. When David realizes he can't see his own sin, he follows with these desperate requests to God. He says, acquit me, keep me back from, let them not rule over me. Three times he says, God, keep me away from those sins that are so subtle. Beloved of God, we don't just need radical cleansing at salvation. 
we need God's recurring cleansing in daily sanctification. And this is what God does as we ask him, as we're all seeing judged, to show us those undetected sins in our lives. That's what David does. Ask God, God, show me those areas that are not right. Look at verse 13. Those sins that he doesn't see. Those hidden sins. But now look at, okay, the hidden sins are followed by a second part, okay? Those hidden sins, he says, God, deliver me from those. And now verse 13 talks about the heinous sins, the heinous sins. Two parts of, two kinds of sins here. The heinous, the the sins that are hidden, he doesn't see. God, show me those, deliver me from those. And now verse 13, the heinous sins. He says, and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. The great sins he's talking about here in verse 13. The transgressions against God here are the presumptuous sins against God's grace. They're directly, defiantly against the grace of God. In the court of law, premeditated murder is the worst type. It's calculated, it's planned, it's willfully committed, it's cold-blooded, and therefore it carries the most severe consequences. In God's court of law, sinning willfully, time after time, persisting in an evil thought or deed, even when you know it's wrong, God says, that will, Christian, that will destroy your love for me and your walk with me in worship. Be careful, watch out. David was most fearful of the known and willful sins in his life. Not just the hidden sins, but now he's talking about the heinous sins. And therefore, his plea should be our plea. God, don't let any sins of presumption rule over me. God, don't let them be there for a moment. Lay me out. Show me those presumptuous sin in my life. I love how David, as he writes, how he masterfully concludes with the brushstroke of an artist. He responds to all of God's communication in his works and his word with an amazing response. Look at the last verse of the text. It's worship. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. Here is a child of God overwhelmed by God speaking to him through his wonders and through his word. And he's abandoned in his worship to God. He's saying, God, make my every word, make my every thought a sweet-smelling sacrifice of worship to you. May all of my life, O God, bring pleasure to you. That's his heart commitment to a God that speaks to him personally. Oh, bless God, we are not those left in our sin, hopelessly abandoned and separated from God. We are forgiven saints. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we can worship him freely and rightly. Fellow Christian, may God compel us, as he did David, to worship him with, the, with our lips and with our life, with our words and with our ways, with speech and with our service, fully given to him. This is God's desire for us. An old African man who knew missionary Robert Moffat, he once held up the, his Bible and said this, this is the fountain where, where I drink and this is the oil that makes my lamp burn. God's word. May that be the same for us. Let me give you some very encouraging, specific ways to walk in these truths very briefly. 
how to be a doer of the word. If you know these things, Christ says you're blessed if you do them. Number one, get outside more. Get outside more to marvel in God's great creation. Be refreshed in your soul as you see the heavens declare his glory. We're in a perfect location to do that. Look at the huge mountains. Look at the skies at night. Look at the stars. Number two, credit the beauty of God directly to him. Credit the beauty of creation directly to God. This is the way it works. When you hear the thunder, say it like it is. Don't say it thundered. God thundered. When you see the rain, don't just say it's raining, but God is sending us rain. Why? Because that directs the reason for that to God, that he is the one that receives our worship for what he does in creation. Thirdly, Christian, don't ever stop marveling at how God powerfully, clearly, intimately speaks to us through his word. And saturate your mind with that truth. Drink of it, take it in, and bless God. Worship God that he talks to you every time you open his word and he speaks to you that way. Fourthly, as God speaks to you through the beauty of creation and the beauty of his word, respond in worship. Bless his name. Cry out to him with praise that he is a God that is beyond all false small g gods. He is the God that is worthy of all of our lives, of all of our praise, and all of our worship. Let's thank him together in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you that you are a magnificent God, that you are a transcendent God, so big, so awesome in your power and your wisdom and your deeds. And yet, God, that you are a God that has come to speak to us personally, that you are a God that has made yourself known to us. Father, we pray that we would be those that live in awe of you, that we wouldn't be able to see a creation without marveling, without rejoicing, without wanting to share that joy with somebody else. And Father, that we'd be those that would respond with hearts of praise and worship. Father, that we would feel our smallness before you and your greatness. And God, we thank you for your word, your truth, that you use to change our lives. Father, may we build our lives, our marriages, our families on your sure word. God, we confess when we don't commit ourselves rightly to hiding your word in our hearts, when we're forgetful, when we don't meditate upon it. Oh, God, thank you for your spirit, the truth teacher who makes your word real to us, who applies it to us. Oh, Father, thank you for giving it to us. May we show our gratitude, may we show our gratefulness in being those that set our lives as never before to knowing you through your word and worshiping you in response. God, we love you and thank you for all that you are to us. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen.